Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast coming to you today from Minneapolis. And Roy, are you, uh, are you in Texas today or are you in I Florida? Am, I am in Texas today. And so uh, excited about this podcast. Uh, Stacy really helped me at one point in my career with some people skills that I desperately needed. And I'm just excited about our session today. I am too. I, I'm excited for a number of reasons. I think, you know, it's, it's always awesome to get good friends back together uh, and to be able to, to share stories. And I'm just super excited to, to hear what Stacy has uh, to share with us today. So today we're joined by Stacy Gardner, who's the managing partner of the Praxis Group. And, and they're a, a firm that helps organizations achieve their goals and uh, increase their profitability by helping leaders become more effective. Stacy is formerly the chief people officer at Russ Reed, where both Roy and I uh, had the opportunity to work alongside her. And she recently contributed what I think is probably the most important chapter to my newest book, um, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them. Stacy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be here with both of you. So nice to hear your voice and let, let's dig right in. So you authored a chapter on leadership for the book and there, there are a number of uh, sort of subsections that you address some pretty meaty topics. And the first one is um, you talked about one of the big mistakes being that leaders lack self-knowledge. Talk to us about why self-knowledge is so important for leaders. You know, when, if you think about throwing a little pebble into a pond and the ripple effect, the ripples that come out, that get larger and larger as they get, go away from the pebble. The same is true with any of our idiosyncrasies at work, that they could be little pebbles, but have increasingly greater impact the farther they get away from us. And as you go up in an organization, you're no longer a little pebble. You're a great big boulder. (laughs) (laughs) You're not talking about my bald head now, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. Um, So I I think of, uh, I, I knew a manager who was extremely creative and a brilliant writer. And his skill was improving any copy that was in front of him. And, and the edits that he made were made the product almost always better than the original. So early in his career, he was praised for editing and rewriting others' work. Well, as he got higher and higher in the organization, he demanded to see everybody's work, which created a huge bottleneck. And it demotivated those who had done the writing because they knew that he would change anything that they had written. So at the lower levels, it was an idiosyncrasy that was praised. He, He was praised for doing that. But the higher he got in the organization, the the more dysfunction resulted from him rewriting everybody's work and the more people problems he had for rewriting everybody's work. 
So it took him realizing that that value added action when he was at lower levels was no longer value added when he got to higher levels, at least not in the way that it was when he was simply a supervisor or a manager. So knowing our idiosyncrasies, I think is important and knowing the impact that they make is crucial if we want to lead healthy, well-functioning organizations. Self-knowledge is important, but not always easy to attain. So let, let's talk about the not easy to attain part. <laughs> I feel like there's, it, it probably kind of, you know, dovetails between understanding, mm-hmm. but also how, how, do we, how do we approach uh, engagements with a posture of, of openness to feedback that might lead us to those discoveries? Right. And the higher we go in an organization, the less and less feedback we get. So it takes developing some kind of either a trusted advisor individual within or outside of the organization or a trusted advisor group within or outside the organization. So there are people that you interact with every day and those that you feel the difference when you're with them because they'll say things that surprise you or they'll say things that were unexpected or they'll tell you something about yourself that you didn't already know. And I I think those are the gems of individuals that you want to pay attention to because they have the comfort or the courage to tell you things that you don't necessarily want to hear. And we all know that it's hard to do that within an organization. It's hard to give difficult feedback to anybody really, but especially to those who have more power or influence than you. But there are the rare individuals who will do that. So I think developing those kinds of relationships whether they're inside the organization or outside. Outside, you can pay a coach or you have friends or family who will shoot straight with you. Those are the folks that you want to listen to because they're going to tell you about your little idiosyncrasies that have become big flaws in the way that you lead. Let's say that you want to develop that as an internal cultural construct, I guess. What, What do you, you know, as a leader what kind of steps do you have to take so that people feel like they can say those sort of things and that they have, you know, the the permission to do that and and they won't get fired for it or, or, you know, in trouble in some way? Yeah. Several things come to mind. So teaching people how to give feedback could be useful in terms of mm, their telling you the, be, the specific behavior or the specific action or a specific example that was problematic. Because then you can wrap your arms around it and really understand what you were hoping to accomplish in that moment that didn't come off that way. So teaching people how to give feedback and also teaching leaders how to receive feedback. And that's about managing your body expression, your facial expression, okay, but also 
managing your tendency to defend or explain. So in any context, whether it's professional or personal, if somebody tells us something about ourselves that we don't like, we tend to defend or explain why we were doing what we were doing. Our intentions are usually good, even though the consequence may not be so good. So our inclination is to explain our intentions. We gotta stop that if we wanna start receiving feedback. Doesn't matter what our intention was. What we need to pay attention to is the consequence of our actions. So if somebody's brave enough to come and tell us something that's not, doesn't feel good, we have to develop the skill of saying, oh, wow, of, of turning on this amount of curiosity and saying, tell me more. Oh, well, tell me more why it had that impact. And what do you think I could have done differently or what do you wish I would have done differently? The more we can do that publicly, the more we will send the message that we're open to hearing. Now we might not go out and completely change our actions, but we certainly will be more intelligent and educated about the impact our actions have. Again, if our intent, usually our intent is good, but our actions are not necessarily always received that way. So if somebody gives us feedback that our action had a negative consequence, doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't shoot for whatever we are trying to do again. It means we need to find a different way of accomplishing that intention. And, and that's where the feedback can help. You know, it's really been an interesting uh, couple years for me. I went from managing, I don't know, five or six people uh, in the Russ Reed organization to three, four, five times that amount uh, where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you taught me is being familiar with the disc scale. Yes. And of course, I'm, I am a, uh, a high noon DI way <laughs> out there. Shocking. <laughs> and, and so I'm always, uh, before every meeting, I have to remind myself, listen, this is not about me. It's about them. I got to dial this back to where they're at, Good. to figure out kind of where they're at in the scale and to try and exert my, um, desire with the least amount of noise. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of framing it, Roy. And the there are times where your high noon DI is really needed and you need to you know, come out full guns blazing to get things done. But they're good for you for recognizing that there are other times where you really need to scale it back. And which is probably uncomfortable for you. It is. And you were the one that taught me most of that. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess to globalize it, it requires a leader being a little bit uncomfortable because they're not using uh, the style that's most familiar and comfortable for them and ramping it back a bit so that others in the room feel comfortable. I and think one of the things I always remind myself, it is like I'm right-handed and it is like learning to write left-handed sometimes, Right. Uh, but I get better at it over time. Yep. You got it. You so Stacy, you said something that I want to just pause on for a second. You said um, that doing this well requires a leader to be a little bit uncomfortable. I find that in, uh, you know, when I, when I go into an organization and I'm talking uh, with leadership, I wouldn't say all the time, but in a, a large number of instances, there, there's a perception that, you know, the, the person who's in leadership 
has quote unquote arrived. Um, you know, they, they've put in their time and their dues and, and now they, they are deserving of the ability to be comfortable and to, to sort of push the discomfort down the ladder, if you will. Tell us why that's a bad idea and why, <laughs> why you have a different point of view. Yeah, well, you can, you can do that and you can lead that way. But I, I see that as leading blindly in that you're going to appeal to certain people and you're going to uh, be effective in certain situations, but not all. And until you can start to learn to be flexible and adapt your style and your approach for the person or for the situation, you will be far less effective. Those leaders who are effective know how to do exactly what Roy described, and that's to adjust themselves so that in that moment, they can be an effective leader for either the people that they're leading or the project or situation that they're leading in. And being a flexible leader requires leading outside your typical style that you use when you're not even thinking about it. You know, I've, I've found that that approach has really helped me as a fundraiser as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that I try and ascertain before I get in the room with a donor is just where are they at on the scale mm-hmm. and learning to, to, you know, make the conversation about them, not me, about them, not the organization, about them, not even our needs. You know, it is, it's, it's getting where they're at and, uh, you know, that was a real benefit of this kind of approach that I'd never thought about before until I moved back into, you know, this frontline fundraiser position where I'm at now. So I want to, I want to pivot us and, and tackle one of the other big mistakes that you talked about in your chapter. And it's, it's something that I don't think I had ever thought of until you, you said the words, but this idea of leaders making a mistake by abdicating their power to influence the people that report to them. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about why that's an important responsibility of the leader. And I think, you know, oftentimes I, I think I run into to leaders who say, well, wait a minute, you know, is, that's the, the employee should come to the table already, you know, knowing what they need to do and, and being able to execute on it. It's not my responsibility. So challenge that idea for us. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> Before I answer it, Andrew, mm-hmm. I want to, um, in terms of leading intelligently about ourselves, I want to recommend a, a book by Marshall Goldsmith. And the book is called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And he lists uh, maybe 20 little things that many of us do and then describes the impact it has on an organization. And it's frightening and useful at the same time. But if you, if nothing else, and you want to know more about yourself and the impact you have organizationally, I would recommend that book. So we will link to that book in the show notes. Uh, and it currently sits on my bookshelf because Stacy, you recommended it to me, like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. So I, I would agree with you. It's a great read. Um, it's super helpful. And we'll link to it in the notes. Great. So in terms of the responsibility of the leader's responsibility in ensuring the success of his or her direct reports or his or her organization, 
it would, yeah, yeah, it would be so great if our employees came to us knowing exactly what they were supposed to do, knowing how to do it, and pull it off without what you said, Roy, earlier, with the least amount of noise possible. I, I, I haven't seen that happen very often. In fact, <laughs> research says that 3% of the population can actually do well without a lot of hand-holding, 3%. So the rest of us, 97%, need something to succeed. And I've had managers come, if, if, if at this time our organization had a, a three-month probation period. So I've had managers come at the end of those 90 days saying, I wanna fire this employee, they just, are not getting the job. And we'll start to talk, well, what, what did you, t- you know, tell me more about it. And what did you do to ensure their success? And I've had managers say, well, you know, I gave them the freedom and the space and the a- autonomy to do what they do best. And I wanted to see how they were without a lot from me. And I understand that intention. The consequence, however, leaves the employee, it leaves a great amount of chance in whether or not they will succeed. And call me more controlling, I don't know, but I would rather not leave an employee's success to chance, but I would like to have a little more certainty that they succeed. And I've learned that in order for an employee to succeed, they absolutely need certain things from you. And the first is, what is it that they're actually supposed to do? <laughs> Many of us don't intuitively know that when we come into an organization. And sometimes we don't even intuitively know that as organizations change. So what, what is it, if I'm the employee, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What is my job? What are my responsibilities? What's the scope of my authority? And revisiting that, in the beginning and revisiting that through an employee's tenure can be really helpful in making sure that they do what they're supposed to do. So I would say that's the first thing. The second thing would be making sure they know how to do what they're supposed to do. So do you know if they have the experience and background to accomplish their tasks in the way you want them accomplished? And if they don't already bring that knowledge and experience, I think the onus is on the leader to be sure that they are trained, taught, mentored, coached, given instruction, whatever's required that teaches them how to do what you want them to do. And I'm not just talking about how to accomplish the task, but also how to accomplish it within the environment, the corporate environment that you have and with the specific people that they have to work with or collaborate with. How can they do that? How can they do their tasks in a way that meets the culture and the expectation of the organization? If, If they aren't doing it right, that often means they don't know how to do it right. And you can have significant influence as a leader if you step in and teach or show them how to do it right. So do they know what they're supposed to do? 
Do they know how to do what they're supposed to do? And the third thing is, are there barriers to them doing what they're supposed to do in the way that they're supposed to do it? So barriers include processes. Are the processes helpful? Are uh, barriers include people? Are there people that are getting in their way? <laughs> Sometimes barriers include you. Are there things that you're doing that make it more difficult for them to do the job that they've been assigned to do? So your role in that way is to remove the barriers that keep them from performing well. And I would say the last thing is, is anybody paying attention? Is there any positive benefit to them doing the tasks the way that they're supposed to do them when the barriers have been removed? So if I do a monthly report for my boss that takes an inordinate amount of time and I never hear boo from my boss, I might spend a little less time working on that report. Hmm. I might even not submit it sometime and see if anything happens. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if not, then I'm, I'm probably a little more motivated to never do that report again because it would appear that it doesn't matter. But when I get feedback or I see the consequence and I see the positive effect of doing my task, doing it well, uh, once the barriers have been removed, I'm far more likely to do it again and again. Um, so get, making sure they know what they're supposed to do, making sure they know how to do it, making sure things are not getting in the way, and then making sure there's some positive consequence, even if the only consequence is my saying thank you, well done, that report was helpful. Hmm. So I, uh, that last one that you mentioned there, I, I learned that the hard way uh, because it, it, is, uh, it is in my nature to go from project to project without stopping to, to celebrate. I, I, yeah. I'm attuned to be critical of mistakes, but it's hard for me to stop and celebrate things. So I, I remember having a young account manager on my staff who, who finally said one day like, hey, we're killing ourselves over here. And, uh, you know, when we deliver a, a project to you, you just give us another project. <laughs> like <laughs> that kind of sucks. Yeah. That would increase motivation. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I sort of looked at her and I thought, wow. So first of all, great, you know, kudos for you for being bold enough to say that to my face. And, you know, because I think she probably reported to someone who reported to someone who reported to someone that I uh, manage directly, you know? Nice. Um, so it, it was, it was great to see that. And then second, I kind of thought, wow, what a jerk. Like, how could I not at least stop and say, Hey guys, great work on this. And you know, Hey, we, we do have another assignment now. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, uh, hearing you say that just remind me of that exact, um, situation. So, um, and not only saying great job on this, but here's why this was so useful in our overall work. So because you did finish that project on time with, with no, no errors, here's what we were able to do. That's oh, long-lasting yeah, long meaning and value. And it also helps them build good judgment about what tasks are priority and what tasks aren't. Because when they know how you used whatever it is that they did for you, they start to understand how their work influences others. 
All right, so the, the third uh, and final section that you highlighted that I want to talk about today is another one that I'm, I know I'm personally guilty of. Uh, Roy might be as well, but, um, and that's the idea. Hey, of... you watch your own guilt. I got enough problems <laughs> on my own. I'm just trying to spread it around, make me feel better. <laughs> uh, it's, it's this idea of believing that it's noble to burn the candle at both ends. Yeah, and, and this is one when I read your chapter, Stacy. When I read it uh, as as we were going through the editing process, I was like, "Ah, oh, I think she had a camera following me. I don't know <laughs> what happened here." <laughs> so you know, I, and I'll say I'll speak for myself, but I for a long time thought that you know, sort of getting to the office at six a.m. and leaving after everybody else had left and working through lunch, all those things that we associate with burning the candle at both ends. Mm -hmm. is is just what good leaders did. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about why that's a bad idea. <laughs> I suppose it could be a good idea if you never wanted to have relationships outside of work and <laughs> a whole lot, a lot of other consequences. But we are all, I think, aware of addiction in America. And there are a whole lot of things that we can be addicted to and one of the things that's so easy for leaders to get addicted to is nonstop work. And I think the reason why it's easy to become addictive is because it feeds our dopamine center hmm. quickly. So we, we get things done. That feels good. We um, get promotions or raises because we work so hard that feels good. People look up to us and come to us for help. That feels good. There's a whole lots, lot of ways that nonstop working gives an immediate feel-good experience. Not doing those things and, and choosing to take time off, choosing to take an hour out to exercise, choosing to leave half day to go see our kids play. Those things don't have an, an equal immediate return the same way overworking does. So, so you think of dieting. We don't lack the information needed to diet and take care of our bodies, right? We are, we are, um, surrounded we are in, inundated with information about how to take care of our bodies but we don't do it and why don't we do it because it feels so good to have that bowl of ice cream it does really i'm telling you <laughs> for me, for me, me enough. <laughs> especially after 10 p.m there's just something about that ice cream after 10 p.m that just does something <laughs> it does and it doesn't feel as good to go to the gym. So it's, it takes a leader recognizing their addiction, and I do mean addiction, and recognizing the consequence of that addiction on themselves, on, primarily on themselves and on their family. It also has an impact on the organization. But the first thing that you're going to hear or feel is the impact on yourself. And the first thing you're going to hear is the impact on your family. 
And when those two things occur, you find yourself in the emergency room or you see your relationships crumbling within your family and you hear them complaining about the amount of work that you're doing, that's when you've got to discipline yourself because it's a choice. And it's a choice to do something that doesn't feel as good, meaning going to the gym, meaning shortening your work hours, meaning taking time for the things that are really important and long lasting in your life, choosing to do those things rather than choosing to do the addictive thing of working and working and working and getting all the immediate payback that that has. It's not an easy choice, but it is, a ch I see it as a choice. And I don't know that there's an, an easy way something that makes it more addictive. <laughs> I don't know if there's another way to make taking good care of yourself addictive. Yeah, um, I don't know either. I mean, I tell this story when I speak about this to groups like AFP and, and others, but when, when I left Russ Reed, mm -hmm. and for those listening who who haven't heard me talk about this. Um, I, I was, you know, Roy lives this life right now, but I was a, a pretty hardcore road warrior in 10 weeks of being in the gym regularly, mm -hmm. sleeping more mm -hmm. and, uh, and eating better 10 weeks. I lost 50 pounds. Oh my gosh. I mean, that, that's like unheard of. Wow. Um, but it was, it was just, simply just, you lost 50 pounds just by being normal. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and not to mention, you know, not, not to mention like the, the emotional impact of being home more on my family mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, from personal experience, I can attest that like when you dial it down, even though it to you're right, like I, I used to thrive on being the one to say like, Oh, there's a problem somewhere in the country or somewhere in North America. Yeah. Send me there. I'll go fix it. You know, mm -hmm. I'll hop on a plane tomorrow. And there was a high that came along with that, but the personal improvements and family improvements that happen when those things changed, I mean, like I wouldn't trade that for anything today. Yeah. Tough lesson to learn. Yeah, for sure. You know, Stacey, one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning, is just the importance of, of having a mentor. I've got a few people inside the organization that serve that role for me. I've also got a few people outside the organization that serve that role for me. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, I encourage my teammates to find a mentor. Good. And, I, and I tell them uh, about those that are having an influence on my life and in that role personally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes we all need to be able to bounce what's going on off somebody else. And they say, it's all right. You're not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> or they say, yeah, you're crazy. You're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the role that I play now. I'm uh, doing my, I have my own consulting and I play that role for many as an external coach. So both working with my coaches to make good business decisions and working with my coaches to make good personal decisions for the impact they have on the organization and the impact that they have on them and their life as a whole. So whether you pay for it or you can find others who will serve that role for you, well done. I think we all need that kind of support. 
so Stacy, you said something to me, you probably don't even remember it, but years ago, um, when we were talking through some of this stuff in your office back when we both worked in Pasadena, and you said something to the effect of that, that as a leader, taking care of myself was actually one of the most important things I could do for the team. Yeah. Uh, because it, it allowed me to, um, to be more present with the team, to be you know, healthy and, and focused, which at the time was, was sort of a foreign thought to me. I, I never would have expected that one of the things that was most important for my team was taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that too? Can you imagine the head of an organization who's always sick, who's always got adrenaline pumping, and adrenaline stops our executive functioning? <laughs> when our adrenaline's flowing, all we have to rely on is our caveman brain, our instincts, and our executive functioning goes out the window. Can you imagine? an organization where the leader is never there or hmm. out saving the world. There's, it is, it's your responsibility as a leader to take care of yourself so that you can be long lasting so that you can be calmly and rationally thinking so that you can have relationships where you will get that kind of feedback so that your emotions aren't on the surface but are well managed so that you have purpose in life. I have a workshop that I teach that looks at your physical energy, cognitive energy, emotional, spiritual, and social energy. And I think leaders paying attention to all of those areas of their life are far more effective than leaders who don't. Think of the leaders that you admire or who get publicity, let's say. They don't look frazzled, (laughs) right? Yeah, for sure. They look like they're taking good care of themselves. Now, some might have idiosyncrasies that are undesirable, but most really successful leaders put self-care as a high priority. It doesn't happen as often in nonprofits because it's addictive to do the work of saving people's lives. You got to save your life first as well. Even Jesus took time away from the crowds. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I, I feel like what I often hear is people who don't believe that they have permission to even think about it that way either, right? So it's it's like, no, 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 like you said, we're, we're here to save lives. We've got this incredible mission that we've got to accomplish, and I have to spend 18 hours a day in the office in order to do that because if I don't do it, nobody else will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the point you're making is, if you keep operating at that speed, no one else will be left around to do it, right? Right, right. Yeah, I can I can remember early in my career, I worked for World Vision, okay. a, a humanitarian organization that, that does relief and development primarily overseas. And they do literally save lives. And I worked long hours and felt good about 
the work that I was doing until I had my first child. And I kept working those long hours for a couple of reasons. One is because it felt like the work that we were doing was so important and the, the work was never done. And so the more hours, the more we got done, the more lives we could save. But it also felt better than mm -hmm. going home to a new crying, needy, needing infant that I had no idea what to do with. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I knew what to do in a professional environment, but had no idea what to do with this new baby until my husband said, wow, what's up? You know, why are you working? We have this child that we agreed we would in, have and invest in. And I had to look at, at why I was doing that. And then for the reasons I've described and did more people die because I started to go home at five o'clock? No, but I, got, <laughs> I, I got more, a lot more efficient with how I did use the time that I had at work and got to invest time in this, this new life it was a much better choice to have normal hours yeah. over, over time. It hurts us and it hurts our, our families and the people we love the most when we're addicted to work. <sighs> well, that was heavy, but it was really good. And I think, <laughs> I think we're going to end on that, that it, it, when we're addicted to work, when we don't make the time to take care of ourselves, it hurts the people closest to us. It hurts us. And ultimately it makes us less effective at work. It does. Stacy, yep. thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the pleasure and the opportunity. I appreciate it, guys. Good, so, and good to be with you again, even if for a few brief moments. You, <laughs> you as well. And before you leave, I think Roy and I can both attest that we have learned a ton and grown a ton uh, through your coaching. So if, if there are others who are listening to this podcast who would like to get in touch with you, who want to talk about what it might look like for you to, to coach them or to do a workshop in their uh, organization, how can people reach you? Absolutely. They can go to my website, thepraxisgroup.com. They can call 626-967-3865 or they can email me at sgerdner at thepraxisgroup.com. Awesome. Thank you again, Stacy. It was really good Thank to talk you. with you today. Okay, Thank you, Stacy. We so appreciate you. We appreciate you guys too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.